Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 102 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. It's a bit of a podcast share fest as we had the Jedi Council podcast on episode 101 and now have Mike Ergo from the Transitions from War podcast. Like me, Mike is a combat veteran who became a clinical mental health counselor after serving in the Marines. He's also an endurance athlete, having competed in triathlons, and is working with the Ironman Foundation to help veterans return from combat and to honor the families of those who didn't. I said, this makes sense. Now I can do these races. I can race an Ironman, and I can compete in honor of these people, and I can find a purpose for that. I can I can finally talk to their families, which I had been avoiding because I was uncomfortable, and say, Hey, I want to remember your son. And then I could have a different relationship with the grief too. And all these, these feelings. Cause before it was just get, getting drunk. And that was what we did to honor these guys is, you know, we'd raise a, raise a glass to them. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it, that's all I did. And it didn't really work out. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn about veteran mental health. Uh, you know, uh, and actually I was just talking to my guest a few minutes ago about how uh, there seems to be more combat veterans that are becoming clinical mental health professionals, and uh, and that's definitely where where I came from. Uh, I was not a mental health professional in the military, neither is my guest today. Uh, and then uh, he became a mental health professional helping other veterans, and so it's a really unique story. Uh, so I'd like to welcome to the show today, Mike Lergo. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. I, I really appreciate the just the chance to be able to talk. Yeah, you know, it's a definitely we uh, we we don't maybe we do too much of it sometimes we don't do enough of it some other times and uh, and also on top of you being um, like me a combat veteran uh, and a mental health counselor you're also a podcaster um, which uh, means we're like quadrahorns right you know that's we've got a bunch of different <laughs> yeah. unique stuff going on so it was really great to connect with you um, a mutual connection uh, Shauna Springer. Um, actually um, uh, introduce me to you and your work. Uh, before we get into that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, you know, I grew up in Northern California, had a pretty nice childhood, nothing too crazy, uh, played sports, music, and I finished high school in 2001, but right before I finished, decided to join the Marine Corps and enlisted to be in the band. And because I, playing music all my life. I thought that was a great career path. 9-11 happened. Short story is I changed my mind, went into the infantry, and found myself in the 1st Battalion, 8th Marines in North Carolina, Camp Lejeune, and deployed to Iraq a couple of times. Once in 03, and then again in 04, where we fought during the Operation Phantom Fury in Belusia. Came back from that with some 
mental health challenges, to say the least, and was eventually diagnosed with PTSD. And after that, became uh, it became a journey of mine to to find myself to to reconnect. And so I, I went through a decent stint of alcohol and drug abuse, and before finally sobering up and pursuing endurance sports, you know, getting my clinical license, uh, pursuing sobriety, and trying to just seek wellness and, and mind, body, and spirit became my approach. And I found that in, in a lot of different ways and ended up working where I got help at the, the vet centers. And so I'm in Northern California directing a vet center. And today, uh, God, I always got to make the disclaimer, uh, I'm not representing the vet center or the VA in any way, of course. I'm just talking about my own experience. Um, funny little bureaucratic hoop to jump through there, but yeah, so I, I've had a heck of a ride. But just the connection of with other veterans, getting to work with people who I recognize were walking in the similar footsteps as I was, getting home, and I just experienced so much chaos and confusion. And for me, I didn't even see what it was. I, I didn't understand post-traumatic stress was. I didn't understand what moral injury was until someone explained it to me. And then I started fitting in those symptoms with what I was experiencing. And I put the, the dots together and was able to finally conceptualize how to walk a different path. Yeah, you know, that's uh, it's it's definitely amazing to see um, that uh, we don't realize what things we, we don't have the awareness about what's going on. You know, I always say that uh, a fish doesn't know they're wet just because you exactly. know, that's, that's where they're always at. And so, you know, we're in the middle of uh, PTSD. We're in the middle of moral injury, or traumatic brain injury and substance abuse. Um, you know, we're living it. So we don't realize until somebody comes up. Uh, I have a, um, a mentor of mine who's actually um, – uh, just transitioned to another position at the VA, uh, but he's a substance abuse counselor. And he says, usually uh, veterans will come in for one of three reasons, their lawyer, their lover, or their liver, right? So going yeah. in the, the legal stuff, the, the spouse uh, or partner or, or, you know, medical reasons, right? You know, a lot of veterans will struggle with insomnia and come in for that or, you know, just physical health. And then being able to have the, the doctor to be able to say, you know, look, there's there's some other stuff seems to be going on here. It, it, but it's interesting. I mean, you you went from, you know, coming from a very much a recovery place, right? You know, I always say when people ask me about, you know, uh, being a veteran who's a mental health counselor, I says the best preacher is a former sinner, right? You know, and, and this is knowing where you came from. Um, the period of time between when you left the Marines and one eight, one nine Marines are, you know, definitely have some of the most significant combat of the last 15 years. What was the time between when you left the Marines that, that lost period, uh, and then you decided to move into mental health counseling? So I, I got home and I just wanted to, uh, hang out and, take a breather, I guess, from life. You know, I, I was used to such a fast pace of life being active duty Marine Corps infantry. And I didn't know what to do next. I knew that some of the things I was good at, I was good at languages. And so I, I was in community college studying. Uh, first I signed up to, to become a linguist to, to study Arabic. And then I switched to, to Mandarin and then uh, Japanese. Um, I wasn't I was intellectually stimulated, but I wasn't, I didn't have a purpose or a drive behind it. I was just kind of spinning my wheels, treading water, I guess is the best example or metaphor. And I'd have uh, panic attacks, I'd have intrusive thoughts, you know, the memories repeated kind of on a loop, uh, things I saw in combat. And the space and the idle time I had was enough time for all these memories and all these just really awful feelings that I had compartmentalized and not felt during combat, thank God. But those started to come to the surface and those started to show up. And every time they showed up, it was so overwhelming. I couldn't, uh, I wasn't able to handle it. And so, you know, as, as a good Marine, I knew one thing solves all problems and that was booze. And so it's, it's definitely was my go-to. You know, booze and cannabis. And 
eventually the I stopped getting some of the, you know a lot of the benefits, the fun part of it, and ended up just having more of the negative consequences. But the way I was, you know, my understanding was that life without that, that's the only thing that made me relaxed or feel good. And so to imagine life without that was terrifying. It was not worth living. So a lot of reckless behavior uh, in between, but I knew like it, eventually it was my, my wife saying, Hey, I just can't go down this path with you anymore. And you have to make a choice. And so I, I made that choice. And in between there, there's some bright spots. You know, I was getting counseling at a vet center and started to get a little bit of hope that my life wasn't over, that there was purpose to my life, that I could maybe work with other veterans, that I could improve the quality of, of, of the world in some small way. But it was, those were bright spots amongst a lot of chaos and, and just emotional unrest. You know, you brought up a couple of really important things that are themes that, that I see, just the idea of we're used to, to traveling at a, uh, at a faster pace. Um, uh, I was actually just listening to this morning, I was listening to your episode with uh, uh, talking about um, almost sunrise. Um, you guys mm-hmm. were talking about how fast things are and then how, how slow things are. And I describe it as, you know, going from, uh, you know, zero to 60 is fun, right? But going from 60 to zero isn't fun. And that's really how the military, especially if you're going all the way to the edge, um, that's, you know, if, if you're going 60 miles an hour all the way up until the day before you get out, and then all of a sudden now you're on a very slow pace, um, we don't like doing that when we're driving. And that's what it feels like for a lot of veterans, from my point of view, um, getting out of the military. It's really unsettling because, the yeah, you're right, that deceleration is confusing. And there's a lot of moving parts in the military that, that help us do our jobs. And we have this, you know, very structured schedules, very rigid ways of knowing what's right and wrong and where to be, how to dress. And without that, things just slow down. Unless someone is really jumping into some other career just like that, maybe. But still, the, the, I'm trying to figure out that just the way of speaking, the way of acting, the way of being is much different in the civilian world. And I think that the biggest shock for a lot of us getting out is that we think, oh, we grew up it for 18 plus years as, as a civilian, so it shouldn't be too hard. But realizing that we are culturally different, especially, you know, my beloved Marine, Marines, we get out and we're, we're very heavily indoctrinated. And so finding that language and, and, and posture and, and way to interact and communicate with people is much different. You know, I, I find myself just being confused. I was working at a, a a law office as a clerk and seeing people show up late, uh, didn't have a, a formal way of addressing you know, the boss. And that was just unsettling for me. And I think just the priority of what was important and what wasn't really got to me. I remember uh, a secretary being very uh, upset that I had made a bunch of copies and they were stapled diagonally instead of uh, vertically. And that was a big deal. And coming from being in, being in a combat field where, you know, people are dying or lives are at stake, just the, the level of upset in my mind did warrant that. And so it was just confusing to see what, how the differences uh, between myself and civilians were. And I, I felt kind of apart from all of them. You know, that's uh, bringing up that culture piece. Everything that defines uh, a separate culture is in the military, right? We have a different way of speaking. We have a different way of dressing. We have a different way of passing on knowledge from one generation to the other. I mean, it it, gen- it very literally is a separate culture. You know, I was in the Army for 22 years, and I explain to people it's almost as if I went to go live in Ireland for 22 years. We speak the same language, sure, but now... <laughs> yeah. I come back and I have this totally different mindset, this totally different culture. Um, and, and, and that's one of the things that we don't do a very good job as leaders once uh, service members leave the military to say, you know, look, this is, there's going to be a period of adjustment. It's not just a period of, you know, finding a new job, um, but it's a, it's a lifestyle adjustment. I mean, even the small things, I, I wore one tie for my entire military career and it was my class a tie and i only tied it one way and all of these different things that you need to figure out to learn um to 
to meet new needs in old ways. And then the other thing you had mentioned about this space, right? So there's there's an idea of deceleration, so a, a slowness and amount of space that we didn't have in the military. When you left the military, um, there's a there's a whole big hole in your life. Um, and I think that we as veterans need to figure out how to fill that hole or it's going to be filled for us, which is what you found um, in your na- nature of whores of vacuum. And so that space in your life was filled with things that felt good at the time, but ultimately weren't helpful. True. And I think adding to that, too, you know, it's this perfect storm of having to make our own decisions, uh, going back to a culture we thought would be easy to just jump right back into. But also, as Sebastian Younger talked about in his book, Tribe, was the the absence of very close friendships and bonds, not just people we liked as friends, but people we knew intimately and interacted with and perhaps knew each other were thinking, even without speaking, with all the nonverbal communication and just the understanding. And so when you compound that with the the time uh, the free time, I guess you'd say, when you get out as a civilian, you have a lot of time to, to miss that and feel that and think about that. And for people who are dealing with any kind of post-traumatic stress, all those things just kind of come in waves, memories, regrets, feelings, what ifs, missing, uh, missing purpose, missing the, that, that teamwork. And so it hits in, I think a lot of us in with such an intensity that like you said, a fish doesn't know it's wet. I didn't know what was happening, and I just knew that it was uncomfortable, and I didn't want to have that. And so I, I tried to find anything, whether it was working out as hard as I could, or getting as drunk as I could, or uh, just living recklessly, you know, speed around my motorcycle, uh, all the classic, you know, veteran things to do when we're just uh, uncomfortable. You know, you bring up a, a great point as far as, uh, and you mentioned earlier, endurance sports. I'd definitely like to hear more about that. But um, it, it's not the quote-unquote bad things that can get too much. You know, it's uh, you can dive too far into, you know, relationships, you know, the idea of codependency or too far into physical fitness, you know, and, and just, oh, yeah. you know, going into that. Um, I recognize and I have consistently recognized as I threw, my, threw myself into work. Um, I think I retired when I was in 14 and until about August of, uh, 2017, I was working six days a week and, you know, and just to be able to, you know, and, and I very much did say, well, I know that I'm going to have space, so I need to fill it with stuff and then it'd be overflowed. And there's just this cycle. Um, we couldn't get into, um, overdoing the quote unquote good things until they turn bad. That's true because the, there's a difference between effective use of time and busyness and busyness can feel productive because we're doing something, but it takes that level of awareness. It takes that stepping back to examine whether the things we're putting in our life are just to fill space. So we don't have to deal with uh, leftover thoughts and feelings and maybe have some introspection on, on what our purpose is and what we'd like to be doing or, or things in our life that we need to address. Or if it's that we're using that time effectively to, to move towards a goal. And so I was, I was finding a lot of uh, busyness because you're right. Trying to fill that space seems like it's, it's, it's a goal. It's ingrained. You know, it, uh, if you, if you're not doing anything, you should be cleaning your weapons. If you're not doing anything, you should be, you know, polishing your boots for us, you know, uh, pre 2000 people who still know how to shine boots, uh, anything. You, you should always be doing something. And so that's, an, that was, I guess, another trait in the military that was hard to break. And I just, I guess, didn't know exactly what to do with that. But you're right. Even endurance sports or even anything that's good, because like, like I learned uh, in school that everything that is a medicine or everything that's helpful can also be a poison. So everything that's medicine is also a poison. It's just dose dependent. You know, if you work out too much, you know, there's a disorder for that. You know, it, it you can do anything. Take it. There's too much of a good thing for sure, and it comes down to balance too. You know, like, are you doing this to because it's good for you? Are you doing this because you enjoy it, or are you getting it too deep into this because you're trying to avoid something else? No, I, I really like that. The idea of of understanding why you're doing this thing. I, I tell veterans I work with. 
Um, if you want to go live in a bus in the woods, right, like Gary Busey and Tommy Boy, um, do it if you know why you're doing it. You're not hurting yourself. You're not hurting your family. You're not doing anything illegal. If you know why I'm doing this and you're okay with why you're doing it, then, you know, it's a free country. But if you think that you're going there just to avoid and you don't know what you're avoiding or, or it's disrupting your family, you know, the idea of going to the gym too much or working too much or, um, you know, getting too involved in community stuff, um, once it starts to impact other areas of your life, um, it, it can be uh, it can be more detrimental than beneficial. And so you had actually, you know, a lot of it, as you said, I'm, I went through this phase and I'm um, quote unquote better if that's what it is, you know, but some veterans would stop it. You know, I'm going to be a, a, a peer at uh, Team Rubicon or I'm going to, you know, do something with the Travis Mannion Foundation. Right. I'm, I'm going to do mm-hmm. something on the side. But you took it a step further and decided you wanted to be a clinical mental health counselor. And so that's it's always interesting to me, um, almost when probably when you meet another 1-8 Marine, you're like, hey, I, you know, depending on when you served or yeah. anything like that, just meeting another combat veteran who decided to take a path of clinical mental health counseling. I'm interested to hear why that happened for you. It was a spark of hope. And I realized that through working with a counselor at a vet center, and it was interesting, too, because... I'll start this out with, I, I only went to the vet center the, the first time because a neighbor of mine was a Vietnam vet, and he, he saw the look in my eyes when I got back, and he, you know, we're out hanging around, and he said, yeah, you should, you need to go to the vet center and, and talk to somebody. I do that. It's okay. These are legit people you can trust. And so his word meant something to me as a Vietnam vet, combat, uh, uh, combat vet infantry guy. So I said, okay. I'll do it. And I didn't want to do it, but I just did it out of respect. Lo and behold, I started getting somewhere. I started understanding what was happening and, and it, things in my mind weren't as chaotic or if they were, I could understand what was happening. So I had a level of awareness, but then I got a level of hope. I talked to someone who was listening to me and really wanted to help me. And really wanted to understand, not pretending she knew what, what it was like to be in combat, because she's a civilian. And I was surprised that I could talk to a civilian. And once I started doing that, I, I started to understand it's really about trust. It's really about that compassion of, of talking with another person who's, you know, they're com- compassionate. They're also competent. They know how to, to help someone and sit there and not just hold my hand. But anyways, I got a level of hope. She helped me find a career path, and she suggested, hey, have you ever thought about doing this work? And I thought to myself, I remember just having a spark of hope. Like, maybe I don't have to kill myself. Maybe maybe there's something I can't do that, that is equally as important that can help other people you know, have that same purpose as, as I did in the Marine Corps, because I wasn't feeling that, that purpose. But once I got that, once I had one, a positive experience where I, I felt, oh, People actually want me here, and I, I still have something to contribute. I felt a little bit of hope, and that, that was enough of a spark to say, oh, if I feel that, what about all these other men and women who maybe could feel that too? And what if I could do that for some people, even one person? And for me, I said, that's that's what I need to run with now, because everything else I've been doing seems kind of neat, but I didn't have the, the, the purpose. I didn't have my heart into it. Yeah, that's uh, that's great to hear that. This idea of I found something that tastes really good, and you need to taste it too, right? I mean, this, this yeah, that that feeling of hope that you know I call it the dawning of awareness when when I see a veteran who you know all of a sudden it clicks and they get it, and they're like, oh, you know, I mean, you're not to the end there, but you know, at that point that things are are, are going to be able to to move forward. Um, the idea for you though of of, of helping other veterans started with another veteran speaking into you. And this is something else that I've seen um, that we veterans need permission to do kind of stuff, you know, uh, not, not permission is like, I will allow you to do it, but you know, Hey, it's okay to do this kind of stuff. If, if you randomly hadn't, you know, had lived in the next street over and didn't have that Vietnam veteran who, who says, you know, look, it's okay for you to do this. We did that. They were in the military. You know, when you were a boot, you looked to your squad leader and your squad leader said, this is okay to do. That's not okay to do. Um, and, yeah. and I see that veterans need that same thing, um, but not enough of them are saying, you know, talking to a therapist, a counselor is, is okay to do. 
Yeah, and I think that there's the stigma is there, obviously, because, and I think it goes back to day one of boot camp for me was you take care of others before self, mission accomplishment before troop welfare, and so you just get the job done, and everything else you shove to the side until you have some free time to just sort yourself out. And that's great. It just doesn't apply as well in the civilian world because you can only compartmentalize so many things until they all just kind of burst out. And so this, this I think, should be looked at as the same as, as going to the you know doctor if you get a broken arm or if you have something that's just not working, have someone check it out, talk through it, and see what's going on. I think that just like, well, I'll say therapy has a such a, a weird, touchy-feely connotations to it that I can see why people avoid it. It makes sense. And until the conversation changes, not from it's either terrible to go and only weak people go to it or that everybody should be in therapy. Those are two extremes I don't agree with, but it can just be looked at as a common sense kind of thing. Same way, you know, we go to a, a dentist, the same way we might have to use a podiatrist for you know, our, our feet. The same way, if, if something's not working quite right, you know, we see that specialist and we get it sorted out. And it doesn't have to be so much, I don't know, uh, so much attached to that decision. Yeah, you, you bring up another great point is the stereotypes that people have about therapy, right? If somebody says, I'm going to see, you know, I'm going to go see a male therapist, then it's always, you know, this guy with glasses and a goatee, tell me about your mother, right? You know, it's this idea yeah, of Freud. Exactly. Or if you go to someone and you say, oh, I'm seeing a female therapist, and there's this, again, the stereotype of, you know, well, they're going to sit cross-legged on the floor burning incense, right? You know, that, that it's exactly. always this kind of, you know, in, in well, we don't, I don't want to talk about that to this guy, and I don't want to talk about this to this girl. And yeah. and so the issue really is is how do we change the, the stereotypes, and, and that's really what what you're trying to do. I'm looking at you, the, the video of you in your office right now, and it looks like a this looks like a former Marines, uh, you know, I love me wall behind you there. In, in my office, oh, looks like yeah. a... I, I got that. That's my I love me endurance yeah. wall behind me. <laughs> right. But you know, yeah, I, it's, it's with my Terminal Lance comic on the wall, too. You know, hopefully it's signed, right? But uh, Oh, of course. It, but see, that's the thing of... Uh, Somebody walks in my office and it looks like a retired first sergeant's office, right? I got maps on the walls. I got coins in a table, right? And, and, and you come in um, and there's this idea of what, you know, what I think a therapist looks like and, and what it actually is and, and it actually changes. Do you find that beneficial for the veterans that uh, that you work with? I do. And because I think there's there there's... Maybe somewhat deserved, but there's there's just a, a picture, the stereotype, is typical, either a Freudian or a very like effeminate, weak man who is the therapist too. And once I meet people and they see who I am, then just that human to human trust uh, is built because we they can see that oh okay maybe this guy isn't just gonna hold my hand and we're not gonna strum a guitar and, and cry together. There, there's weird. We are going to do the work and we are going to, I'm going to be with someone to guide them to look inside themselves and, and see what is going on, maybe what they are avoiding, what the, the specific values they have in their life are. And if they're doing something that isn't working, that goes against those values, what can, what can they do to either eliminate that or, or modify that? And then sometimes it's trauma work. Sometimes it's, Allowing, you know, using various methods like EMDR um, to allow the body and brain to uh, learn and, and heal itself. And so there's some of that deeper trauma work. But when I meet with someone, I'm not, I don't have any, uh, any agenda. And I think when people see that, right, like my office is just, it's a, it displays my personality and people can see, okay, this guy was actually a combat vet. And for a lot of people, that's important. And I'm trying, I'm still trying to weigh in my mind. I haven't decided about whether it's better to be a, a, a veteran uh, as a mental health professional or not. But I do know that the, the one advantage is that 
there's a level of credibility it gives me, which also gives me a level of responsibility to back that up with being a competent uh, provider, a competent therapist. But when people can see, oh, this is this is someone who has been in combat. This is someone who's been deployed, who, who has seen rounds come downrange and return fire, that they can see, okay, maybe they can hear what I have to say. You know, it, one of the things I hear from a lot of vets is, you know, a civilian or you know, a peacetime veteran couldn't possibly understand what I've gone through, so there's no use talking to them. For better or worse, that, that is the perception of a lot of vets. And I get why people think that. I thought the same thing. And so that's instantly like a barrier for a lot of people to, to not get treatment or not seek it for themselves. So I have the advantage, definitely, of saying, okay, I, I don't totally understand what we've gone through because our experiences obviously are different. But I've had my own experiences, and, and I can tell them as much as will be helpful to let them open up and share, too. You know, that is, uh, that, that's, that's great. I feel the same way, um, especially when it comes to um, being able to have a shortcut for the rapport is really what that is, is the connection between the, the, the client and the clinician, you know, getting off the, the ground pretty quickly. Then you bring up the point is, is you recognize, you don't go in and say, well, you know, I know what it was like, right? You did two tours in Iraq, um, so wouldn't be able to say, you know, what it would be like for somebody in the, the Argandab Valley in Afghanistan, right? Um, yeah. I, th- I see that a lot with veterans where they'll be telling me, you know, whatever their stories will be going through and, and talking about something. Then they'll, then they'll stop and they'll be like, oh, but you know, because you were there. Well, I, I was there with my stuff. I need to know what you were there with your stuff and, and not be able to jump over that. Um, and that idea of, uh, of if listeners are, are, you know, veterans thinking about the mental health field, that there is a level of responsibility, that it doesn't turn into two, you know, guys or a guy and a gal swapping more stories, right? Because you can get that in the mm-hmm. DFW, right? It, there's actually, we as clinicians who are veterans actually have a responsibility to, um, to take care of things in the right way. Especially when that trust has been given because we are a veteran, because you're right. There's no point in just sharing war stories. We can get that out of the BFW or anywhere else, but being able to hold that trust and being able to use that to get people to, to dive deeper. Because even people that I deployed with who are in my same platoon have a different experience coming back. So we can relate very closely. You know, if you look at it as a spectrum, we can relate very closely, but their experience based on how they were brought up and what they actually saw and what they perceived to be happening, how they interpreted it through their values, is going to leave them with a completely different experience than, than me, so I can't even pretend to know what they're thinking or feeling. And so being able to say, okay, I understand what it's like to be afraid or can convey that, maybe not say it just like so bluntly, but I can convey that I know what it's like to be afraid, I know what it's like to be angry, I know what it's like to be confused and relate on those levels, but still help people to explain their own experience and to try to come to their own understanding on these things and, and do that work. Because if I assume that I know, then I'm probably going to miss something really big. No, that's that's absolutely true. Um, and and being able to do that helps sort of in the uh, in the office, right in the therapy office. Um, but then you took it outside of that, right? I mean, again, this idea of, like me, you're a combat veteran. Like me, you became a clinical mental health counselor. Uh, but also you started your own podcast and blog, um, which takes things a step further, right? You know, and there's, there's fewer and fewer. So uh, how did you get into that? And what was the impetus behind the whole blog and podcast for you? Originally, the blog, Transitions from War, was to help me understand my own journey and to verbalize and then write down my thoughts. And when I when I stopped using drugs and I stopped drinking alcohol in 2012, I, I tried to find a, a, a new purpose because I had all these feelings still and memories to deal with. And it eventually, I had a friend who got me a, a registration for a half marathon for my birthday. First, I just thought, oh, this is this present sucks. I got to do a bunch of work for this present, <laughs> and 
it turned out to be one of the best gifts I've ever got because I started running and I started after the first couple of weeks, which are usually miserable, you know, first week and a half of trying to get back in shape, your body just hurts because all these new stresses are being put upon it, atrophy muscles and joints and ligaments. And, but I remember a couple of weeks into the training for this half marathon that I just, I started to feel good. I still remember the corner that I was turning in the neighborhood that I, my body just started to feel good. And I just had this, this little feeling of just being okay. And for me, once I, I developed a, a higher level of awareness, I guess, I realized that for a long time, it did not feel okay to be in my body. It did not feel okay to be in the present moment. I did anything to get out of it, mentally or physically, to get out of my body in the present moment. But then it felt okay. And so I said, huh, okay, that's interesting. And I just noted that. And, and I started, I kept working out and kept training and eventually found other endurance challenges like Go Ruck and uh, an open water swim. And again, I had another Vietnam vet uh, who challenged me to, to do that. Just like my neighbor had asked me to come to the vet center. And he, he, he knew exactly how to get a Marine to, to do something. And uh, he told me, hey, I, I, I lead this to swim from Alcatraz to San Francisco. It's a, it's about a mile and a quarter, a little more. And we take a boat out there and we jump out with wetsuits on and swim back to this you know, the city of San Francisco. What do you say? And again, I thought, this sounds horrible. I don't like being freezing cold. Aren't there sharks out there? And I hate swimming. And, but he said, okay, well, you know, I understand, but you know, I've gotten, I've done this for a few years and, you know, with Boy Scouts and they get a merit badge for it. So that could be their primary driver. But if it's not something for you, I understand. And so basically this, this army vet just like knew exactly how to harness my ego. And I said, well, of course I'm doing it now. And I saw him. I just like, well played, sir. You just got me. It's, it's, it's okay. I got yeah. some Girl Scouts out here that are going to be able yeah. to do it. If it's, if it's too much for a former Marine, then don't worry about it. And I just, I just, I was so impressed with the, just the mental jujitsu that he threw me with. And I did it thinking I'd hate it, but you know, I just pushed through it and, and have an awesome check in the box, notch my belt and just say, Hey, look what I did. And I ended up loving it. And I started to feel good, even better than running now, because there's something about being in the water that well, the cold water shocked, you know, the feeling of depression out of me, like in an instant. And then I was able to find uh, my breath with swimming, even before I started incorporating meditation in, into my life and breathing, I found a rhythm of breath that helped my body feel okay to be exactly where it was. And just the rhythm of swimming, being out there in the open water, uh, and just beautiful scenery in the San Francisco Bay. Afterwards, too, when you swim, especially when you're swimming in colder water, your body is, is just flooded with endorphins afterwards. And so having been experienced and getting high, I knew what it felt like. And this was the best body high that I have ever had. And it just felt like, oh, this feels really good. And I don't have to do anything crazy or illegal to get this feeling. There's the, there are not these negative consequences to it. And everything about it, I found a community of other vets that I could swim with and I felt better. I was getting healthier. I was getting in shape. So, so many, so many cool things were happening. And eventually, I was in, on vacation in Hawaii, and I saw I just it, what what I then thought was a coincidence. I, I was there at the same time as the Ironman World Championships, and I watched it happen. I watched the just the energy around the village of Kona before the race started. The excitement, the positivity, and then saw these people racing and had this just death kind of fear over me. Like, why would people do this? And then the anger after the fear to, to cover up that fear, just saying, like, what's their problem? And then this interesting thing happened though, because when I started working on myself, I started to notice and I was taught that fear is, is 
is a signal. It's a very powerful signal. And if I could have find a different relationship with fear, I could use it to my advantage. And so I felt that fear. I wanted to run away. I wanted to be angry at these people for, for racing. And it makes no rational sense. But I said, okay, there's a fear here for a reason. Perhaps if I lean into this and allow myself to experience this fear, I'll, I'll, it'll guide me to something that's really important. Because basically my fear was that I could never do something like that, even though I really wanted to. And so I signed up for a half Ironman race almost immediately, a couple of weeks after I saw the, the world championship. And the pieces came together for me, too, when I was watching a video of a woman, Lisa Hallett, who lost her husband um, in Afghanistan. and she started an organization called Wear Blue Run to Remember and started racing in, in his honor. And so all of a sudden, I was watching this video on YouTube in my house. I remember it. And I allowed myself to just, I just cry and feel this grief. of you know, I lost 21 guys in my, my second deployment. And then more since have been killed or had completed suicide or died from medical complications. And I said, Oh, like I didn't have to hold that back anymore. And I said, this makes sense. Now I can do these races. I can race an Ironman and I can compete in honor of these people. And I can find a purpose for that. I can, I can finally talk to their families, which I had been avoiding because I was uncomfortable and say, Hey, I want to remember your son. And then I could have a different relationship with the grief too. And all these, these feelings, because before it was just get, getting drunk. And that was what we did to honor these guys is, you know, we'd raise a, raise a glass to them. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it, that's all I did. And it didn't really work out for me. And so I tried this out and I allowed myself to feel all these feelings and use them to get healthier and use them to find a purpose. And so then I started competing. I had all the names of these guys in my jersey now. And I started competing in Ironman events and beyond this, just the, the, the fun part of saying I, I, I am now an Ironman. I've completed three Ironman races and a handful of, of half Ironmans and different other challenges. It's a purpose behind it where I tap into an energy that no matter what, I'm never going to quit. And so that was probably one of the most powerful experiences I had is just seeing that video of someone doing something they will love to do, run, and connect that to a deeper purpose. You know, there's uh, there's a lot of great stuff there. You know, you, you said uh, this body high that you got um, where you, you wouldn't have to do anything crazy or illegal. Um, arguably, mm -hmm. some would say swimming from Alcatraz to San Francisco <laughs> might be crazy. Uh, yeah. But then but then there's that, you know, whatever the connotation of crazy is, is, uh, you know, wanting to go back to war. Right. This is sort of, uh, you know, a natural thing for a lot of veterans. Um but I also like in, in going back to when you said when you went in the cold water, it shocked the depression out of you. I mean, and, and you, I'm sure you know um, the very medical reason for that. You know, our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems um, operate in, uh, in in diametrically opposed processes, and changing your body chemistry through a, a cold shock or through you know a constant exercise, changing your your diet and your um, uh, the way you live like that. That changes your body chemistry, which causes the the, the parasympathetic nervous system to start engaging, uh, and you're able to to generate. So there's there's medical stuff for this that helps the psychological thing go forward. Um, but then also, you know, the 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 purpose. You keep talking about this purpose. It's a task to be conducted. Uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, well, the task is just to be able to say I'm an Iron Man. But no, you put meaning into it to say. It's meaningful to me, and that meaning helps me accomplish this task. It does, and I, I dive deep into symbolism and putting meaning to things and assigning meaning to things, and that helps me to continue when, when things are hard. And you know, we look at the, the reasons for doing things, and I've heard it said in, in a self-improvement book that there's a few different categories. There's the external validation you know, someone say, oh, wow, you did that. That's awesome. You get an ego boost and you get some support. And that doesn't last. Uh, that, that drive, it's easier for people to quit working on something hard if that's their only drive. You know, it's to, to get good abs so girls will notice me. You know, if you start that out in January, you're probably not going to make it into February if that's your only motivation. 
It's just how it goes. And then there's the internal validation to say, oh, I did this. I'm finding purpose. This feels good. You know, I can, I can accomplish things. And to have that feeling, that will get you a lot further. But even better than the internal validation is a pro-social reason. Uh, a reason that if you're doing something, it's going to help other people. And so you assign that meaning to it. And you find a reason that that's why so many people race for different charities, because then the race becomes something bigger than the, just the physical event. It's the physical event is just a vehicle to deliver uh, goodness or, or help to, to other groups of people or another person. And so then when you, you know, you wake up like I did at, at five this morning to go on a, a seven mile run when it's you know, 30 something degrees. It's a lot easier to say, of course I'm going to do this. You know, even though I'm tired, even though it's cold outside and it's still dark, you know, I think of, oh, this is my reason for doing this. And of course I'm going to go do it. Right. And, and you have uh, not only are you competing, uh, but you've also started working with organizations. I, I've been hearing you talk about um, working with um uh, with organizations and gold star families to do this kind of thing. And, and, and for me, it's okay. So recovery just wasn't enough for you. You had to take it the next step to be a mental health counselor. Right. And, yeah. and then being a mental health counselor wasn't enough for you and taking another step to be able to communicate these things on the transitions from war blog and podcast. And then competing wasn't enough. And now you're emerging into something else um, at, that you're working on um, coming up here in 2019. Yes, and that's the, uh, thank you for bringing that up, and that's the, the Gold Star Initiative. So working with Iron Man, last year I had the idea, I, I got to be, uh, well, one little quick segue is, is I, Iron Man found out that I was competing in honor of my friends, and they invited me to, to race on the big stage in Kona at the World Championships. So for people who are not familiar, it's the Super Bowl, the World Series, the World Cup, the triathlon, like all in one. All over the world, people are, who know anything about triathlon they know what it is to race in Kona. Tremendous honor. And they invited me to compete based on the reasons I was racing. And then since then, I, I got to be the kind of like the grand marshal or the, uh, the ambassador for our local Ironman here in Santa Rosa, California. And so they said, is there anything you want to do special uh, as the ambassador? And I thought about it. And I had this little tinge of fear come up. Because someone had approached me about doing something, uh, carrying a flag in a race to the honored veterans, honored uh, Gold Star family members. And I thought, oh, God. So I had that same kind of fear. Can I do this? And I said, before I could chicken out, I said, I'm going to carry a flag for the whole marathon in honor of a local Gold Star family. And they said, are you sure about that? I said, 100% sure. <laughs> yeah. And... Up to that point, I'd admit, ran maybe eight miles with a flag, and I was like, well, you know, what's, what's, no, another 16 miles to that. So, uh, I said, okay, I'm going to be okay with this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get through it because I have the purpose. So that's not a problem. I know, I know that my mentor's friend who's, who's up there, but it meant so much to the family and it meant so much to the community because the reason I, I, I figured it out is that as a lot of combat vets feel, some, a lot of us carry survivor's guilt for getting back and say, why did I survive when so many others didn't? You know, to which it becomes a cliche, rightfully so, because it's a lot of us feel that. And I was avoiding the Gold Star family members because I felt a level that I couldn't be I and say, I'm sorry, I, I know I, they should have come back and I shouldn't have come back. I just felt so guilty that I couldn't bring them back. I, I couldn't keep a promise that I'd made to myself that I was unable to keep was, was bring my friends back safely. And the Gold Star family members that I talked to through my years of working as a, a counselor would say that after they get a big burst of support around the funeral or when their son or daughter was killed, but then after the funeral, Everyone didn't know what else to do, and so that level of discomfort led them to avoid them out in public. And so now you get this whole set of families that lost their son or daughter, and then they start losing their community. And they become, I don't want to say pariahs, but they, in a sense, get shunned. And so 
And then you have the community who, who wants to help, by and large, wants to help vets and both their families. They just don't know how. And we have three set tribes of people here, all putting up barriers and all not sure how to connect. So I said, what if we connected all this to, with Iron Man, you know, during the race here? And we connected the Gold Star family back into the community, honored them, honored their son or daughter, had a vet carry a flag for that family, and then had the, had the community there to, to see what was happening and be able to support that family. For one of the families that I carried the flag for, we got them involved in uh, equine therapy, working with horses and horseback riding. And for some of them, it's just getting connected, having people come up to them and say, thank you for the service of your, of your son. And, and actually talking to them and allowing them to talk about their son. Like one of the, the mothers I worked with said, my greatest fear is that I'll never be able to talk about my son again because people will be sick of hearing about it. And so I thought, okay, this is a great venue for this. I can use whatever 15 minutes of fame I have to make this into a, a, a greater purpose. And it doesn't have to be a miserable thing because a lot of times I used to think that service was just miserable and you had to do it and push through it you know but this is something i really love doing and we can connect to a better purpose too and so it, to make a long story even longer i approached iron man and said hey can we do this on a national level and they said yeah how let's do it and so starting this year we'll have four races where i'll be carrying the flag for one of them and we'll have three other half ironmans um, in the state of california just places I know we can get the, the mental health and community support. And we'll have other veterans carrying flags for different Gold Star families and the communities there around the race involved. And so we're going to, the goal is to have this at all the races in, in the United States. And maybe even farther, I don't know. But to give people the, the chance to connect these communities. You know, I think, I mean, even in that little piece, um, it, it is heartwarming to hear what you're doing, and then it's heartbreaking to hear a mother say, I'm afraid I'll never be able to talk about my son again. And this idea of, I've heard the same thing, and as I was nodding in agreement when you were saying it, um, that there is a large amount of support which then trails off almost into nothing. And usually it's six months or a year after um, a Gold Star family you know, is notified. They need to be reengaged or, or could or should be reengaged because that's really when the loss sets in. Um, and it's almost like a second death for them, right? It's, exactly. it's almost like they're losing their, their son or their daughter uh, for a second time and, and repeatedly. Um, and then just this, this idea of, well, well, this is what I'm going to do to connect, right? It, you, you see this, you know, this hurting population, let's say. I mean, and, and this is, it, it doesn't, hurting doesn't mean weak, but, you know, veterans who are hurting, you know it as well as I do. And the veterans, if they admit it to themselves, know the same. Um, of course, the families are hurting. Um, and, and in many ways, the, the communities are at a loss because they don't have connection to either of these two um, very, very important aspects. Um, so this idea of making that connection. Uh, and then at the very end, you said, um, what about going forward? Um, you know as well as I do that we had a lot of coalition partners when in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've had um, uh, the, the third episode was with British Army journalist uh, Matthew Green. Uh, I've got another British veteran coming up. I've talked to Canadian veterans, some um, uh, German veterans, uh, Australians, right? Our coalition partners that served with us, we likely have more in common with them, and they feel the same way than our neighbors who never served, right? So you're able to connect more to, you know, a Canadian veteran um, who served in, uh, you know, in Kabul um, than somebody who was never over there. So that idea of taking it to other places. There are other vets. I, I'm, I guarantee you there's probably some Aussies that would be all about this kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I, I love the, the character of the Australian people in general. They're the uh, lovable uh, cowboys always getting in trouble. Uh, so I would be shocked if they didn't take this and run with it. And so you're right. It, it's, it started out as uh, an American veteran thing, but I'm trying not to, to, to limit it because I've, Working with people, I've learned that if I can allow myself to just to think bigger and open up possibilities, then a lot more things can happen. What, what started as, as a small idea just to carry a flag for one person for, for one race, I allowed myself to say, okay, how can other people get involved with this and, and make it bigger? So 
it'll it'll get as big as it as it can. But the the neat thing about it is that everyone I've talked to in it gets very excited about this because it gives them, no matter who they are, an opportunity to be a part of something. And in which, you know, like if if we're talking about a Gold Star Family event, there's only a select few civilians or outsiders that can be a part of it to help. It's a closely guarded community, and in some ways rightfully so. In this way, it gives everybody who wants to be a part of it agency to, to make change, whether it's through a donation, whether it's through signing up to volunteer at this event, or just walking up to the Gold Star family and saying hi and making human contact and just saying hello. Everybody can be a part of this, which is neat. Or even is is when you said that you had seen Lisa Hallett and what she was doing on YouTube, just watching it later, right? You know, being able yeah. to say, you know, holy crap, this thing happened, right? You were there on ground in Kona, um, but you know as well as I do, the audio, the, the written word, the video, um, that can help bridge that gap as much as, as anything else. And so this is something that can continue on and on and on um, so that, Essentially, on YouTube, you're carrying a family for a fallen uh, service member, a Gold Star family, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 a year. Um, and, and so putting yourself out there really helps bridge that, the gap that we all know and we all talk about that is there between the community and those who've served. And it gives people hope. I mean, we can, it'd be hard to argue that there's not enough uh, bad news out there. So we have plenty of bad news. Only thing that's a bummer to 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 see, but this is something that's positive, and hopefully, we'll give other vets and other Gold Star families and other just people in general hope that there's good things happening. That no matter what the circumstances of the political climate or the economy, that when people get together and find purpose and find a a joy and a love that's that's even more powerful than all the hurt and all the anger and all the suffering, then when people see something authentic, they can grab onto it. We know it. We don't know it almost immediately when we see something authentic. And so you're right. This is something that people can can take with them. And even if they don't participate in this, hopefully it'll spark an idea of, of how they can be effective in their community too. And I, I hope that it's, it's contagious like that. And we're not doing uh, Ironmans here in Colorado. There doesn't seem to be much <laughs> water out here. Um, but just the ideas of somebody climbing a 14er with a, uh, with a gold star family flag or, or, you know, yes, some, exactly. something else like that. It's, uh, it's intriguing. You know, I, I, uh, definitely want to be, uh, focused on, on the time that you have. I, I really think, and this is unfortunately some of the challenges that we could probably sit here and talk all day. We didn't even touch on your views on moral injury and, 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 uh, we briefly touched on meaning and purpose, but that's a whole nother show in and of itself. So, before you come back on another show in the future and we talk about that, how can people find more about you, uh, what you're doing online, uh, the transitions for more podcast and blog, all that stuff? See, so there's the website, the transitionsfromwar.com, and each each week the, the new episode of the podcast gets uploaded there. It's also on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all that stuff. And then Instagram, transitions underscore from underscore war. And uh, Facebook, same name. So uh, all my contact info is on there as well. And I think that's the best way I try to post updates about this Gold Star Initiative and about just the things that I'm going through as well. You know, sometimes we always post just the positive stuff on, on social media. And I like to put more of a real face on there sometimes. Uh, I put that on there and I'll tell you what, getting some cold-ass water, even if it's cold-ass shower for a few minutes can help kind of shock it out for a little while so that's where people can find me and yeah i'd love to connect and dive into some of these other topics with you pretty soon yeah that's uh that's great so uh definitely make sure that all those things are in the show notes and uh and and then we'll make sure that we get it out thanks for coming on the show thanks for having me You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health.
One of the things that I've noticed is that more and more veterans are leaving the military and continuing to serve their brothers and sisters as mental health professionals. I'm telling you, it's needed. I'll say to those veterans that are listening the same thing that I was told in 2007. If you're interested in psychology, consider a career in mental health because there are not enough combat veterans in the industry. You don't have to be a veteran to be a mental health counselor who supports veterans either. But the more often that we have people with lived experience like Mike, the stronger the field is going to be and the more support we're going to have for those who served. Make sure to check out Mike's work on his website, transitionsformore.com. Thanks for taking the time to check us out. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST102. While you're there, share the link with somebody that you think may enjoy it. Remember, we got a lot of great guests coming up, so we're going to two shows a week, one on Tuesday and one on Thursday. You can still get the blog post, which is going to be released on Wednesdays instead of Thursdays. You can find out how to get all of those at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash subscribe. On that note, we're always looking for guests. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com if you know somebody who you think should be on the show or you think you'd like to come on the show yourself. Or you can go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guests to fill out a suggestion or request. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While Mike and I are both practicing therapists, we're not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out and do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track Not Alone from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone, ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.